before we come to the reading of God's word, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're hungry, but we know that we don't live by bread alone. Our souls crave every word that proceeds from your mouth. The grass withers and the flowers fade and fall, but the word of God stands forever. You speak no falling words. Your words are truth. Sanctify us by that truth. We know that all scriptures given by you profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that we may be equipped for every good work. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please do now take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Hebrews 11. If you're using the Bible in your row, it's on page 1007. If you don't have a good Bible of your own or one that's readable, we invite you to take that copy with you and use it It as our gift to you. We've been looking at Hebrews for about 10 months now as a congregation. We're working verse by verse through this book, and we've come to chapter 11. Chapter 11 is all about faith. It's the by faith chapter. Sometimes it's called the hall of faith, and it's profiling these Old Testament saints like Noah and Abraham and Moses, these these heroes of the faith. In fact, Romans calls Abraham the father of the faithful. And we're looking, we're focusing on Abraham today. We did this two weeks ago as well. Uh, Two weeks ago, we saw Abraham as a man journeying to a heavenly city. This time, we see Abraham as a man looking forward to a child of the promise. Remember, Abraham and Sarah have never been able to have children of their own. But in their old age, God gave them a promise that they would one day have a son and that all God's promises to them would be fulfilled through that son. Uh, To be clear, the focus of this section of scripture isn't on the faith of Abraham so much as it is the faithfulness of Abraham's God. So listen now to God's word, Hebrews 11, starting at verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born, many descendant, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. 
And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you ever find yourself in a conversation with an unbeliever who is perhaps going on the offensive against your faith, one of the questions you might receive is, can God create a rock so big that he can't lift it? And the skeptic might feel that he's just toppled over your faith by showing an inconsistency in your theology. Well, you know, there's a very simple answer to that, and that is that God doesn't do silly things. That's, that's really the answer. God doesn't do silly and self-contradictory things, and so God simply wouldn't make a rock so big he couldn't lift it. We do serve a God who is omnipotent. Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. We teach our children this, don't we? My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. And that's right. But we also know there are certain things that God cannot do. God cannot change. Because he can't change for the better. He's already infinitely good. And he wouldn't change for the worse. God can't ignore sin, for he'd be an unholy God. God cannot fail at his purposes. And of particular relevance to this passage for Abraham, God cannot break a promise. God cannot lie. His promises are certain, even when they seem unlikely or even, humanly speaking, impossible. We're just going to look at a couple of things today. And the first thing I want you to see in this text is the certainty of God's promises. The certainty of God's promises. Back in Genesis 12, just after God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, He made incredible promises to Abraham. He says, Abraham, your name will be great. You'll be a great nation. You'll receive the land of promise. And your offspring will be as innumerable as the stars of the sky and the grains of sand on the seashore. Now, it's a phenomenal promise on any level, but it's particularly amazing because Abraham was 70 years old or so. He was in his 70s at that time. But what's even more astounding is God did not fulfill those promises immediately. In fact, around 25 years went by, and you can imagine if you're Abraham, childless, and awaiting this child of the promise, humanly speaking, with each passing year, the promise seems less and less likely to ever come to pass. Abraham desperately wanted to believe these promises, but They seem increasingly impossible, and Abraham would remain childless until he was 99 years old, and his bride was 90. You know, Hebrews described him in verse 12, uh, Hebrews 11 verse 12, he was as good as dead. 
it's unreasonable for Abraham to ignore that reality. God doesn't call us to ignore reality. We're to be reasonable people. God gave us eyes to see and observe and ears to hear and brains to to rationally think through that truth. This is really, really important. Beloved, faith doesn't ignore facts, but faith does consider the facts and act in light of all the facts Not only those which are seen, but also those which are unseen. And so Abraham could see that his body is is withering away. But he also had the unseen promises of God. And whatever God has promised is a fact, even if our eyes have not seen it yet come to pass. And so Abraham knew the biological reality that childbirth for him and Sarah was an impossibility, humanly speaking, but he also knew, even more importantly, that it was impossible for God to lie. He was at a a fork in the road. He weighed human impossibility that he and Sarah would ever have a child against the divine impossibility that God could ever break his promise. And Abraham realized, if God is God, then nothing is impossible for God. And so I verse 11, I think is really the key to this whole chapter. It's a weird translation issue, so some of your versions are going to say, by faith, Abraham had the power to conceive. Some of them are going to say Sarah did. It's, it's a, just a question of not being exactly sure how to tr- if the text is talking about Sarah or Abraham. We just don't know. But it says, by faith in the ESV, Sarah herself received the power to conceive even when she was past the age. Now, here's the, the really important thing about the whole uh, Abraham story. Since she considered him faithful who had promised. Now, whether it's talking about Abraham, considering him faithful, or Sarah, it really doesn't matter. What matters is that he who promised is faithful. And so these things that were not yet visible to their eyes were theirs by faith because of the trustworthiness of him who promised them. That's why in Genesis 15, look there with me for a moment. Abraham is still processing these promises. He's still trying to understand them with all of their impossibilities. And in Genesis 15, in the first five verses, God's saying to Abraham, listen, I've promised it. It's it's reality, even if you can't see it. And in verse 6, we're told, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. By the Holy Spirit's work in Abraham's heart, Abraham knew God's word could not and would not fail. You know, this has always been the testimony of God's people, that God's word will not fail. Whatever God promises, God will do. That's biblical faith, resting in the certainty of God's promises. I, I, I think if we step back from this passage a little bit, we really understand the key to this, uh, to Abraham, understanding Abraham's faith is not the question, how strong was Abraham's faith, but rather, 
how firm, how certain are the promises of Abraham's God. You know, I think sometimes we we get this wrong. We think of faith as a thing we do. But faith is really about what we can't do. Faith looks solely to God as the one who can do what we cannot. And he will do whatever he's promised. And in that sense, faith is all-consuming. It's nothing less than total, looking to him alone, holding nothing back, giving everything to follow this God because as we give everything, we receive infinitely more from him. Now, if you know, if you're familiar with the life of Abraham, you know Abraham's life and faith were not always steadfast. You know, sometimes that apparent impossibility that his eyes could see trumped his trust in God's promises. He had several giant failures in his life, didn't he? He he lied to the leader of Egypt to save his own skin twice. You know, disobedience is always the result of a breakdown of faith. It's always the result of thinking that God's not trustworthy. It's always the result of unbelief. You know, Abraham's most glaring failure is back in Genesis chapter 16. God's timetable wasn't working as fast as Abraham and Sarah would like. At that point, Abraham's about 85 years old. And so Abraham and Sarah discuss things, and they say, you know, it's been a decade. God hasn't delivered on his promise. Maybe he wants us to take matters into into our own hands. And so Abraham commits adultery with Sarah's servant, Hagar. He tried to force the promise of God into existence, and it was sin. There's no other way to describe it. It's interesting. The scriptures don't condemn it there, but we see the fallout from it. Sin always creates chaos. It always creates conflict, and that's exactly what you see in the life of Abraham is chaos and conflict between Sarah and Hagar, between Isaac and Ishmael. It's a conflict that endures even still. But even in Abraham's utter failure, God was at work. Fourteen years after that, Isaac was born. What God was teaching Abraham for 14 years in the waiting room was not so much to trust in a particular outcome. Yes, I just need to have a child so that God's promise comes true. But he was teaching Abraham to trust God himself. He was teaching the father of the faithful to hold fast to his faith by clinging to the faithfulness of his God, who will never break a promise. You know, that's what Hebrews was written for. You've got these converts, these Hebrew believers. They they profess to follow Jesus, but they're not seeing an immediate return. What they're seeing is persecution. They're seeing the loss of, of their earthly goods, and they're wondering you know, what's in it for me? Where's the, where's the reward for me? And some of them are turning away from the faith. They're, they're abandoning the faith, looking for earthly rewards. They're wondering, are God's promises worth waiting for? And some of them are saying they're really not. And they're abandoning the faith. What do you do in these moments when you wonder if God's going to keep his promises? You return to the scriptures. 
remembering again and again, reminding yourself again and again that God cannot and God will not break his promises. God's word gives us that reminder again and again and again because our faith forgets again and again and again. Just think about the people of Israel for a moment. About 500 years after Abraham and Isaac were on Moriah, God's people were slaves in Egypt. And they're groaning under the weight of slavery. And God raised up Moses and through a series of ten miraculous plagues and one even more miraculous river crossing, God delivered Israel from Egypt and he's leading them towards the promised land, a pillar of cloud by day, fire by night. Surely they can trust God now, right? What do they say? They get in the wilderness and they say, God, we're hungry. We're tired of the food here in the wilderness. Did you bring us out here to die? You know, they forgot God's goodness. They forgot God's promises. As an aside, by the way, I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but when Israel was oppressed in Egypt, they cried out to God for help. When they were set free and they were wandering in the wilderness, they grumbled against God. Isn't that often the way it is that when things are at their best, We are at our worst. But God continued to lead them and protect them. And even though they gave him every reason to abandon them, he remained faithful and led them into the promised land. And I want you to look at Joshua 21 for a moment. What God said to them as he led them into the land through Joshua, as Joshua has been allotting the promised land out to the various tribes, In Joshua 21, he says, starting in verse 43, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all all the enemies into their hands. Listen to this, verse 45. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. They had all come to pass. Israel's been wandering and doubting God's promises, and they come into the promised land. Joshua says, don't forget, every promise God made, he fulfilled. Well, they forget again. Joshua 23, Joshua's old and preparing to die. He says to them in verse 14, Now I'm about to go to the way of all, all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. That word failed means literally fallen to the ground. Not one promise from God fell to the ground. God was faithful to everyone. No, Israel forgets again, don't they? Again and again and again. First Kings 8, Solomon rebuilds the temple. He's dedicating it to God. Verse 56, he says, not one word has failed of all his good promise. And then 300 years later, Isaiah, the prophet, reminds the people the grass withers, the flower fades or the flower falls, but the word of God endures forever. Some of you are going to receive flowers this week for Valentine's Day, and they're going to be beautiful for a week or two. 
but then they'll start to droop, and then the petals will fall. Not one of God's word will ever fall. Not one word will ever fail. We need to understand the certainty of God's word, that whatever he has promised, whatever he has said to us in the scriptures, he will do. That's what Abraham's having to wrestle with. Do I believe this? Does the impossibility of my eyes trump the impossibility of God's word failing? And at times the answer was yes, but ultimately Abraham was able to say, no, God will remain faithful. And so Abraham could rest that if God said there will be a promised child through whom all these awesome covenant blessings will come, I can rest in the certainty of that promise. Well, that's the second thing I want you to see, the child of promise here. After a quarter century of waiting, God brought the promised child to Abraham. And so in chapter 21, Sarah gives birth to Isaac. Not only is this obviously, humanly speaking, a great joy, but this is the child of the promise. This is the one through whom the promises would be fulfilled. You know, there was danger that Abraham's faith would rest on this child rather than the sovereign God. And so God tested Abraham in chapter 22, our Old Testament reading from a few minutes ago. Abraham. Yes, Lord, here I am. Abraham, you know that son you love so much? Your only son? Go to the land of Moriah. Offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abraham went. They climbed the mountain. You can imagine the conversation. Father, here I am, my son. And Abraham puts the wood for the altar on Isaac's back and carries the fire and the knife. And Isaac says, Father... There's fire and there's wood. Where's the sacrifice? God will provide, my son. Now, no doubt Abraham believed that. But even as they build the altar and lay the wood in order, there's no apparent provision. But Abraham knows by now that God will not break his promise you know hebrews eleven nineteen explains abraham's heart to us he says he considered that god was able even to raise him from the dead that's that's what abraham thought if you have to raise if i have to raise the knife on this child and you have to raise him from the dead this is not beyond the realm of what you can do he was the impossible child anyways and you can do the impossible now In a sense, Abraham's saying, God, you must have a plan in this. Your promise is that through Isaac, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, that in my seed will be the posterity of the future. And God, you've never once broken a promise. So if you want me to lower this knife into his chest, I trust you. Even if that means you have to resurrect him from the dead. And with that, he lifts the knife. You know, he doesn't have to determine how God's promise and God's command fit together. God, if I do this, 
Does it ruin your promises? That's God's job. Abraham's job was to obey by faith. And as the knife is raised, Abraham's preaching a sermon that endures 4,000 years later. Faith is not only essential for salvation, but to a life of pleasing God. Faith enables us to obey God even when obedience is costly or seems unreasonable because we know that whatever God has commanded is right and he would not command anything of us that was not ultimately for good. God did provide and as he raised the knife, he hears, stop, Abraham, Abraham, now I know that you love me and God provided a ram to take Isaac's place. Now, what was the point of all this if God was going to provide a substitute? It was a test of Abraham's faith, yes. It showed the genuineness of his faith, yes. But Isaac's death would not have accomplished anything. He couldn't die to bring the covenant to pass because he was a sinner too. There's more here than just Abraham's love for God being tested. The real point of this story is that Isaac was a type. He was a foreshadowing of the ultimate child of the promise, the Lord Jesus. And this story is a picture of the gospel as Christ was taken up on a mountain as well. As Christ carried the wood as well. But unlike Isaac, Christ was not ignorant of what was going on. He understood as he went up the mountain, there would be no animal to die in his place. Because he was the lamb. The lamb of God sent to take away the sin of the world. And as the Lord Jesus was bound to the wood, rather than an innocent sacrifice dying for him, he was the innocent sacrifice who died for us. And as blood dripped from his head and his hands and his side, as each drop fell to the ground, it bore eternal witness that none of God's promises would fall. And every expectation that was placed upon Isaac as the child of promise was fulfilled in the greater, the ultimate child of promise, the Lord Jesus. I want you to look with me at Romans 8 for a moment. It's not surprising that the Apostle Paul would be very aware of Abraham's role in the faith. And again and again in Romans, Paul has referenced back to Abraham as the father of the faithful. But I want you to see how how Paul seems to be applying the work of Christ as a fulfillment of what Abraham and Isaac foreshadowed on the mountain. Look at Romans 8, starting at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Isn't that what God's been teaching us through Abraham? My child, you can trust me. You can trust what I'm doing in your life, even when you can't see it, even when it doesn't make sense. My purposes are good. I'm not fickle. I'm not moody. I will never change my mind. All things are for your good, my child. 
Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you hear what Paul is saying there? The Lord Jesus, the firstborn of all creation, he's the ultimate child of the promise. Through Isaac, the physical line would be preserved, but through the Lord Jesus, the spiritual line would be redeemed. He's the one through whom Abraham would receive offspring that number greater than the sands on the seashore. He's the one through whom Abraham would receive the true heavenly promised land. He's the offspring of Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He's the firstborn. That means he's our elder brother. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That, that's own son language. That takes us back to Genesis 22. Abraham, take your son, your only son. And of course, you want to say in the back of your mind, well, what about Ishmael? But, but it's pointing to that, that Isaac was the son of promise. He was the cherished son. And God's saying, Abraham, you didn't hold your beloved son from me. Now I know that you trust me. Now I know that you love me. And now you and me, beloved, we can look to Calvary. And say to God, now I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you love me because you didn't withhold your only begotten son from me, your cherished son. The father loved the son infinitely more than Abraham loved Isaac, and yet he gave his son for us. He, in a sense, thrust the the knife of our sin into the soul of his son, bringing out immeasurable suffering so that we could say, now I know that you love me. John Chrysostom, 4th century preacher, says, note how high a price he sets on us. If when we hated him and were his enemies, he gave us his son, what will he not do now when we are reconciled by him through grace? That's what Paul's saying there. If he would not withhold his own son, but freely give him up for us all, can't you trust him for all things? Paul goes on in verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who, who justifies. What does justify mean? It means to pronounce righteous. We already said back in Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And part of us wants to say, how could Abraham be, be pronounced righteous? He had been an idolater before God called him. He was a liar multiple times and he was an adulterer. How could a man like that be righteous before a holy God? Because Jesus, the child of promise, bore Abraham's sin on Calvary. Hebrews 11 illustrates this so well. When you're back in Hebrews 11, more space in Hebrews 11 is dedicated to Abraham than to any other Old Testament character. But notice what was omitted. There's not one word about Abraham's sin, is there? It doesn't talk about his lies. It doesn't talk about his idolatry. It doesn't talk about his adultery. 
Do you know why? Because when Jesus went to the cross, he carried Abraham's sin with him, and in his crucifixion, he separated Abraham from his sin as far as the east is from the west. There was no sin left to speak of. He covered it with the blood of Christ. He threw it behind his back. He washed it away. He remembers it no more. He casts all our sins in the depths of the sea. He nailed the debt, the record of our debt to the cross. That's why Abraham's sin was not mentioned in Hebrews 11, because it had already been dealt with in Christ. And that's how God could be both just and justifier of the elect. This is how Abraham was righteous because he looked forward to the true child of the promise who would take away his sins. Beloved, be clear on that. Abraham, even Abraham, could not save himself, and neither can you. In the history of the world, no sinner has ever been saved by their own good works. Not by church attendance, not by following rules, not by the eloquence of their prayers, not by being a deacon or an elder, not by answering an altar call or raising their hand or saying the sinner's prayer. None of those things are what save you. It is the power of the gospel to redeem your soul. And we receive it by faith that God will do exactly what he's promised to us in the gospel. It was foreshadowed at Moriah. It was fulfilled at Calvary. Let me ask you, beloved, have you come to faith in the Lord Jesus? You must. Because this God who keeps his promises has also promised that he will one day return. And he will separate all men. He will judge the sins of all men and he will separate the sheep and the goats, some will be at his right hand, some at his left, some will go into everlasting life and everlasting glory, and others will go to everlasting condemnation, and every person in this room will go one direction or the other, and if you are not trusting in Christ, you will die under the weight of your sins, and they will crush you for eternity. Are you trusting in Christ, have you repented of your sins and come to the Lord Jesus who alone can bear the weight of your sin? Have you fallen before this holy, holy, holy God, confessed your sins and trusted in the true child of the promise? We're going to sing this in just a moment, but it's a beautiful illustration of what Christ did on the cross. Let us wonder grace and justice. Those are two things that seem contradictory, grace and justice join and point to mercy's store when through grace in christ our trust is justice smiles and asks no more in other words justice has been satisfied not by my works but by christ he who washed us with his blood has secured our way to god god did the impossible that's why hebrews 11 could say from this one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand. Are you a believer? Then this is speaking of you, predestined before the foundation of the world, adopted into the family of God, regenerated by his Holy Spirit, his for all eternity, and sealed by the blood of Christ until he returns. He will keep his promise. 
How do we apply this text? One application, very simply, this is not the prosperity gospel. There is a, a false teaching that exists in many, many, many churches. You can go home right after the service and turn on your TV, and you will see this on many channels. And it teaches that you can tell God whatever you want to have, and he is on the hook to give it to you. And so you've got false teachers out there who call it things like name it and claim it. Prosperity theology teaches that that's what Jesus came to do, is to give you health and wealth and prosperity. Isn't that interesting? Those are actually the same things the devil offered to Jesus in the wilderness. It's not the prosperity gospel, but rather claiming what God has promised to do for our salvation in the gospel. That's the substance of our hope. Second, this text reminds us to be aware and cautious about our idols. Abraham's test with Isaac is a good test for us. Uh, it refers, the text refers to Abraham, uh, to Isaac as Abraham's only son. It says that because he was so dear, so precious to Abraham. All his hopes and dreams were wrapped up in Isaac. It's easy for that sort of thing to become an idol to us, isn't it? Something that's more important to us than God. Something that our souls find their security in rather than God. Faith doesn't withhold that which is our dearest from God, but rather offers it up to him. Of course, we're not going to be called to sacrifice our children the way that, that Abraham did with Isaac, but we are called to lay our idols down. And those things that, that vie for the affections of our heart, we're called to lay them down before God and say, God, do whatever you want with them. You are more important to me than even my money, my reputation, all of it. You are more important. We should always be aware in our hearts of, of our idols and be willing to lift them up to God. And then third, finally, as you read Scripture, no matter whether it's Old or New Testament, always ask the question, where is Jesus in this passage? Jesus is all over Genesis 22, even though his name is not once mentioned there. Jesus is in the ram that was there in the thicket. Jesus is in the child of the promise being altar, uh, offered on the altar. We read the scriptures Christocentrically because every verse, Old and New Testament, points to Christ. Particularly, it points to the blood of Christ. I have a good friend who loved the Word. He was older than me and a retired minister, and through the years he developed a system of highlighting verses in the Bible depending on what they were communicating. They were different colors, and so one color was for imperatives, and another color was for, for uh, narrative and so on. I think by the time I knew him in his 60s, every verse of his Bible was highlighted a different color. What color do you think the promises were? They were red because all God's promises are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, we love you. 
And as much as we love you, you are infinitely more worthy of our love than we in a million lifetimes could offer. Altogether lovely, altogether worthy. God, everything about you is is the desire of our hearts. Lord, teach us to trust you. Teach us to trust the certainty of your word. We live in an age which says that the word, that the scriptures have sort of passed their expiration date. They're no longer relevant. They're old. They're archaic. Oh God, one day all those who, who say such things will be laid in the ground, but your word will stand forever. Teach us to trust your word, especially as it points us to the child of promise, the Lord Jesus. We pray all this in his matchless name.